The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon this this hour, or 40 minutes. Father, we thank you again for our great uh, salvation in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, as a reminder of uh, you, all authority has been given to you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that uh, you who point to Christ. We pray now that this uh, time of uh, study of the Westminster Confession of Faith would be a uh, a blessing and a and something that would fortify uh, our acknowledgement of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. So, I'm Dan Lumley, and uh, the elders of uh, the church here asked uh, last week was uh, you know, Mr. Lewis and then myself. As uh, elder candidates, nominees that uh, you eventually will be uh, voting upon, uh, called um, that uh, to come up and teach. So to get to know us. Let me just take a thirty-second liberty to tell you who I am, real quick, because of uh, the um, some of the things that I uh, will come across here. Um, number one, the I'm actually a retired police officer out of uh, Aurora, Colorado. Um, but I'm back into policing, but as a civilian support staff member. So I work for the Cary Police Department in, as a civilian support over, over our police records. But in between there, uh, I've had uh, uh, ministerial experience. I've actually been a ruling elder in the Presbyterian Church of America since 2000. Uh, 2020, I've actually uh, been, uh, the Lord sidelined me for because we've moved in other circumstances. And I actually was a teaching elder in a uh, small Reformed church in Wisconsin from uh, 2004 to about uh, August 2008. Um, And uh, I was starting my third year of seminary at GPTS in uh, uh, South Carolina. Uh, Matt was on his way out uh, uh, graduating. And then the Lord would have it in his providence. uh, I uh, fell ill and um, basically a heart attack. and. uh, decided to call it quits as a teaching elder and stayed as a ruling elder in the church. So that's how I come to you with uh, um, my experience on that. Um, I thought, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pastor Aachen did uh, uh, the uh, first three sections of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter one. Uh, so today we're going to look at section four. I think you're going to find that on page 920 in the uh, Trinity Hymnal, if you would like to look there. Um, Westminster Confession of Faith um, is really a a, a great uh, theology that helps us in our walk. But what we're going to learn today is I may pull you into the forest um, and you won't be able to see the trees. So I just say, bear with me. Uh, One of the things that I will conclude is, is a one scripture that this all sums it up. Uh, I remember in uh, my seminary classes, I probably had three specific semesters on the uh, 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 canon, and it was quite extensive, and especially when you talk about biblical criticism and and so forth, that I, I would recommend not to get you involved in something like that. But so I highlighted some of the things that I learned over probably three semesters in this, this 40-minute period. Um, if you see uh, the preacher in um, Ecclesiastes, Solomon, 
concluded with this verse, and I think this is something that perhaps we can even include ourselves with. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, and I'm going to plug in the word PowerPoint slides. There is no end, and much study is wearisome of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been hurt. The end of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And so at the conclusion of this class, I have something similar out of the New Testament. And this is basically, as uh, Mr. Lewis taught us in reference to the memorization of Scripture, I think it's a good Scripture memory for our fighter verse, and I'll give that to you at the very end, so stay with me. But don't get uh, caught up in the forest when we can't see the trees, because there's a lot of information we have to cover here. So in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, as, uh, as an elder and perhaps as a future elder, we uh, look to the what is known as three sets of documents. Uh, the primary is the Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 of the New Testament, and then what was considered the Constitution, which is also secondary and tertiary, or third, the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechisms, and the Book of Church Government, Discipline and Worship. But primary is the Word of God, and this is not something the OPC decided. This is something they acknowledged, uh, and that's, that's a, a question that we need to know. Primary scriptures, here are some several scripture references that basically I pulled out. You may say, well, Dan, this is like circular reasoning. You're, you're trying to show that the Word of God is the Word of God, and yes, it is. And, and we all think in a, a presuppositional thinking, you're going to probably hear from me my presuppositional commitment to the Word of God. That's the basic foundation. In fact, when we're up against every worldview out there, they all have their own presuppositions. And we, we start with the Word of God. Um, scripture's uh, inspiration, as uh, Pastor Aachen talked about, as men were moved by the Holy Spirit. I think probably the, uh, the one that you can see in Second Samuel 23, 1-2. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, the sweetest, or the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. And obviously, we, uh, a couple of weeks ago, this was scripture was read, knowing that, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I would say our uh, locus classicus uh, aspect of what scripture is, all scripture is breathed out by God. Some translations would say God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then, as we mentioned in the under the OPC, the secondary is the Westminster Confession of Faith, which we're looking at, subordinate to the Word of God. And it's wonderful when we look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, those divines pulled out what I call the golden threads, that was the doctrine that was woven throughout the Scriptures. So it's it's this the subordinate doctrine that you see in your hands now is very valuable, and obviously the tertiary, the Book of Church Order. So let me just do a quick review of where we were heading because we're going to be speaking to the primary aspect of the Scripture. We're going to acknowledge the preeminence of Scripture. So uh, Pastor Aachen covered a couple weeks ago uh, the necessity of Scripture. You can probably break it down into these three categories. 
the reality and trustworthiness of natural revelation. Uh, but natural revelation is insufficient. And I'm not saying deficient, but it's insufficient for salvation. And I will add on biblical ethics. What is what is the loving thing to do? Because as Christians, as disciples of Christ, that is what we want to do. What is the loving thing to do? It's not a situational ethic. It's what Christ has commanded us. It's, it's revelatory, what God has written in his word. Truly, that's what love is. And antithetical to the Christian worldview, everybody who's doing what's right and wrong in their own eyes come up with all kinds of different ethics. And I, I had semester after semester of uh, ethics and uh, comparing it with the worldly ethics. But what was important, as we talked about, was the reality and importance of supernatural revelation. Obviously, when we talk about that, it's that special revelation. Christ, who appeared in the flesh, the Word of God that became flesh, but the very Word of God that we hold into our hands, the 66 books of the Bible today. It's necessity. The reason why? Because you cannot say what is happening out there is what ought to be because the world is full of total depravity, right? And so you're not going to always see that. So we need the lenses of Scripture. John Calvin called it the lenses of Scripture to interpret out there, to interpret correctly natural revelation. So special revelation, the necessity of that. And then we touched briefly a couple of weeks ago on the canon of Scripture. I would say probably in two categories. Uh, Pastor Auken talked about the extensiveness of it. We're talking about the 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 of the New Testament, and intensive. In fact, the, what we just put on the Scripture verses, given by the inspiration of God, by the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, and it is our rule of faith in life. Um, the harmony of the Westminster Confession of Faith, shorter catechism, you know, there is harmony in reference to uh, the uh, catechism. So when you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, you can go over to the shorter and the, the larger catechisms, and you'll see the harmony on that. Um, what do scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That's pretty uh, uh, simply, profound and simple there. And then we concluded, I believe, two weeks ago, the Apocrypha is exclusive, is excluded from the canon. And some may ask why. Um, and I spent, and again, this is why I spent so many semesters in reference to this and actually uh, come to the final conclusion what the scriptures were. So that's what I would like to talk about today. And part of the idea when we look at section four, what is the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependent not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. And so uh, it always this begs the question that we've probably covered in the last three weeks, what is the canon? And I would even put this down to the, 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 the beginning battle of uh, those rebels against God. The question is, whose intellect is primary? Is it God's or man's? Now, you and I, we would say it's God's. But because of the, the rebellious nature in us still fighting in the aspect of we sometimes rule think that man is primary. In fact, when you look at church history, we're going to see, well, it was man who decided the canon of God, and that is completely wrong. It was not the canon. It was 
based upon the providence, the hand of God, decided our canon. And we, I mean, that is, I spent so many uh, semesters looking at all the, uh, the theories out there, and that's where I would eventually say, stay tuned to my last slide, because that was my fighter verse to fight through all that. Anyway, so whose intellect is primary? Well, you know, circular reasoning. We're going to the Word of God. Genesis 2.19. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now, God was not sitting here saying, Adam, let's see what concepts and ideas you're going to come up with. And once you come up with that, I will agree with that. No. As an image bearer, if you understand this, this, this context of the scripture, Adam, as an image bearer who was created in knowledge, righteousness, holiness, was to interpret what God had already known. So when he looked at the animals according to their kind, according to their categories, he was reinterpreting what God already knew. Adam was doing that perfectly on that. So he was reinterpreting, thinking God's thoughts after him. And that's what we who presuppose the, the veracity of God's word, we think God's thoughts after him. Genesis 48 says it, and Joseph said to them, do not all interpretations belong to God, or do not interpretations belong to God? Job, as we're going through the scripture reading, will any teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? So whose intellect is primary? Thomas Watson, in his uh, A Body of Divinity, contained in the Sermons upon the Westminster Assembly of Catechisms, they had long titles in, writes, the perfection of God's knowledge is primary. He is the original, the pattern, and the prototype of all knowledge. Others borrow their knowledge of him. And so, again, thinking God's thoughts after him. I mean, this, you think, well, this is a profound, simplistic statement, yet, all mankind, the antithesis to the uh, Christian worldview, claims that man's intellect is primary. So you get all the the craziness that goes out in Christendom, you know, whether it's called liberalism or the aspect of neo-orthodoxy, where they don't believe the Word of God is fully the Word of God, but maybe contain the Word of God or becomes the Word of God. But we hold that it is the very Word of God. And then Cornelius Van Til. Any of you are familiar with him? He's a hard read. Uh, but this, I think, is an insightful uh, uh, thing that he writes. Uh, bear with me. I'll read it to you and just let it absorb. But basically, it's going to back saying that we think God's thoughts after him. Real simple. But Van Til writes, The system that Christian seeks to obtain may be, by contrast, to be said analogical. By this is meant that God is the original and that man is the derivative. Oh, goodness, sinful, rebellious men hate to hear this. God has absolute self-contained system with himself. What comes to pass in history happens in accord with that system or plan by which he orders the universe. But man, as God's creature, cannot have a replica of that system of God. He must, to be sure, think God's thoughts after him. But this means that he must, in speaking to form his own system, constantly be subject to the authority of God's system to the extent that it is revealed at him, to him. Here's kind of a category. We won't spend too much time on it, but if you want to know the difference between God's knowledge and man's knowledge, 
God's knowledge there in that left column, and then man's knowledge on the right column. <clears throat> God's knowledge reference point is God-centered. It's He is where all logical and conceptual reasoning is in his mind. He's infinite in that aspect. He's the all-conditioner of knowledge. Every knowledge transaction that takes place is continually according to his will. He's the all-conditioner, absolute, ultimate, comprehensive, self-contained, original knower, pre-interpreter, incomprehensible, original, all-determinate, infinite, and eternal. Whereas you and I, who are image bearers, we're man-centered, we're conditioned, we're derived, our knowledge is derived from God, it's proximate, it's imprecise, it's dependent, we're the re-knowers compared to the original knower, we're the re-interpreters according to the pre-interpreters, it's limited, subordinate, and analogical to God's, and we're finite and temporal. And hopefully that humbles our pride because that's what man is. John Calvin is Institutes. Look at John Calvin's. If you've gone through John Calvin's Institutes, this is book one, chapter seven. This is the title of chapter seven. I like it. It's insightful. Scripture must be confirmed by the witness of the Spirit. Thus may its authority be established as certain. And it is a wicked falsehood that its credi- the credibility depends upon the judgment of the church or man. What do you think John Calvin meant? What did he really mean? Well, go read his Institutes and you'll go into it. John Calvin uh, obviously is a man, but he's acknowledging God is the uh, thing. So here in, in chapter 7 is is uh, some of these things. I try to just pull out little bits and snippets there, but I would never do it justice. Um, so he writes, Before I go any further, it's worthwhile to say something about the authority of Scripture, not only to prepare our hearts to reverence it, but to banish all doubt. When that which is set forth is acknowledged to be the Word of God, there is no one so deplorably insolent unless devoid also both of common sense and of humanity itself as to dare impugn the credibility of him who speaks. Now daily oracles are not sent from heaven, for it pleased the Lord to hallow his truth to everlasting remembrance in the scriptures alone. Hence the scriptures obtain full authority among believers, who when men regard them as having sprung from heaven, as their living words of God were heard. But of a most pernicious error widely prevails that scripture has only so much weight as is conceded to by the consent of the church. You might be talking about the Council of Trent. What reverence is due, Scripture, and what books ought to be reckoned within the canon depend, they say, upon the determination of the church. Thus these sacrilegious men wishing to impose an unbridled tyranny upon the cover of the church do not care what what absurdities they ensnare themselves in others, provided they can force this one idea upon the the simple-minded that the church has authority of all things. Again, whose mind is primary? The Lord. so let's just briefly go through the idea of canonization. We're not here to say why the canon, but we're going to look at some of the glimpses to fortify us on that. Your English Bibles basically consists of these four categories, you know, the Pentateuch, the first five, the history, the poetry, or the wisdom, and the prophets. But that was not always so, because if you look at the Jewish canon, the same, same Old Testament uh, writings, but rearranged differently, it was referred to as the Tanakh. Has any of you ever heard of the Tanakh? Okay. So the Tanakh was basically, the, the, the stands for the Torah, the Navim, and the Ketuvim, the teachings, the prophets, and the writings. So the Jewish uh, scriptures on scrolls had this three division, and we're going to probably hear this later in one of Jesus' teaching. It's the same 
it's the same 39 books of the Old Testament that we have, but we're arranged differently. I won't have time to go through all of them, but later the teaching of the first five books of uh, the Pentateuch, the Nevi'im prophets, the earlier and later prophets, and then the writings, which include the Psalms and Proverbs. And look, it concluded with uh, Chronicles. That's important to know when Jesus spoke to that generation about from the martyrs, which was from uh, Abel to, to um, Zechariah. From the beginning of Genesis, we read, as Jesus would say, to the end of Chronicles. That was because it was in the order of the Tanakh. So, between 1450 B.C. to 336 B.C., the Old Testament scriptures, the Tanakh, on separate scrolls written by various inspired writers, were compiled and copied by the scribes. And you'll see there is a triple sense. If you want to see, a, this, is, this could be a problem when the church goes back and try to find why were these canonized. The answer is never going to be uh, an exact answer. But there are these things in the scriptures. And as you go down and further, in, as we look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, we're going to talk about how the, uh, these themes, how the, the scriptures is the consent of all the parts of scripture. Because there is no contradictory between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But there is a triple sense, a unified theme that's interwoven throughout the 39 books of the Old Testament, comprised of the revelatory and harmonic concepts of, you'll see this, creation, fall, and redemption. Creation, fall, and redemption. And Pastor Ockham once reminded us the idea of the fall. There's an aspect of decreation. And then in redemption, there's the aspect of recreation. But when you look at creation, fall, redemption, you'll see this, this common thread interwoven throughout the Old Testament. And the gospel was first pronounced in Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium. The seed, of this, the, the seed of the woman, which was referring to Christ, would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. So the gospel was proclaimed to Adam and Eve in the garden from the very get-go. And we see this unfolding. And so in the Old Testament, the uh, waiting for that seed of the woman was anticipatory. We see that. Christ is in throughout the Old Testament. When Christ came, we see the definitive aspect, and you and I are now in the progressive aspect, awaiting the consummation. So these are the consent of the parts of Scripture that speaks for itself. Not because I'm passing judgment, it's what my observation is through Scripture, and pointed out by some godly men. If you remember that spiral, I borrowed that from Pastor Holtz on the covenant. There's also another thing that's in the unfolding history of redemption, it's the covenant. We know that from the very beginning, God entered into a covenant of grace because after the fall of man, a covenant of grace started with Adam, then Noah, Abraham, uh, Moses, the Vedic, and then in Christ. And so the old covenant, like that spiral that's unfolding, came to Christ Jesus. We're under the new covenant. And so there is that aspect we see in the Old Testament and continuity that goes into the New Testament. Old Testament, internal witness, um, Deuteronomy. Read Deuteronomy 18, 18, Mike. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18 to 19. I will raise up a prophet from among their midst, like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about. That whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, 
I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet Okay, so in the internal witness in there talks about there is a way to discern the spirits of Jesus, false prophet from true prophecy. Already in the scriptures, there was an aspect of discerning that. Um, so internal witness of the Old Testament canon. Um, we also have other scripture verses in there, how the, the scriptures are inspired. Uh, Exodus 34, 27, and Lord said to Moses, write these words. And so the uh, the first five books of the uh, that are attributed to Moses, Moses wrote them down. Daniel seven wrote down his his visions. We know in the canon of the Old Testament was God spoke in sundry ways, and part of it was in visions. And then Psalm one nineteen, the psalmist even writes that he loves the precepts of God. <clears throat> in Proverbs thirty five six, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge to Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. So scripture is already, uh, uh, pres uh, presumption is the scripture is there. We also know from external evidence in the New Testament itself that the Old Testament canon was recognized by eternal Jewish historians, Jewish writings, and the purported Council of Jumea. I, I realize the, this council in the first century of Jumea, scholars now debate if it even existed, but uh, the, the Old Testament canon was actually already identified, the, the Tanakh that I showed you. There's really no dispute. There was no question over it. Um, and Romans 3, 2, Paul says, Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so the idea that the canon was available. There may have been some uh, outside the canon books in downtown Jerusalem at the uh, Christian bookstore. Uh, well, but, you know, those were extra biblical writings that are not recognized. It's just like today. You go into the Christian bookstore, and you see books and books and many books on that, trinket shops and things like that. But they they, they don't have authority. The, the scriptures have the authority. So, anyway, when we go to the New Testament, David Dunbar and his hermeneutics authority in canon asserts there are 250 plus quotations of the Old Testament and 900 allusions to the Old Testament found in the New Testament. So the Old Testament canon. Well, when we go into the uh, uh, New Testament, we uh, I think we spoke about this two weeks ago, but we're all familiar with this, the temptation of Jesus. How did Jesus respond? It's, it's presumed he used the Tanakh. He understood that because he would, he would um, uh, talk to uh, the aspect of the temptation. It is written. Three times he would say, it is written. It is written. Away from me, Satan, for it's written. And then the first one, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That was taken from Deuteronomy 8.3. So Jesus referred to the idea of it is written. And then there's the parable of the rich man in Luke. Look what Jesus said at the idea there. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them and from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, Jesus said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. And so 
I mean, this is a perfect proof test of the idea of the illumination of the Spirit to understand what the Scriptures were about. But he talks about the idea there from Moses and the prophets. <clears throat> well, Jesus implies a close Old Testament canon. There's nothing in history that even says that the Apocrypha was part of the Jewish canon. In fact, when you go to uh, Luke um, in chapter 24, 44, Jesus seems to imply there is that, that triparate canon, the, the, the Tanakh, that is, uh, he's referring to. Uh, David, would you read um, Luke 24, 44, and 45? Everything written about the law of Moses and prophets was times as he fulfilled when he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Revelation reminds us that the the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the Old Testament anticipatory of the coming uh, seed of the woman, the crushed the seed of the serpent, Christ is just is dripping out of the Old Testament. But here Jesus is implies, and many scholars would agree, that he's referring to that, that tri-aspect of the Old Testament canon, the Tanakh, because he's referring to them here as the, the uh, Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, that three-point division. Um, Jesus also, as we mentioned before, when he was talking and lamenting over the uh, rejection of himself, he says that the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechon, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. And since this refers to Second Chronicles 24, it gives, again, another aspect of that three-fold portion of the Old Testament. And then, obviously, Apostle Paul implies the Old Testament canon was closed. Uh, in both of these scripture verses, the mention was that the scriptures were given to us that we might have encouragement, or in 1 Corinthians 10.9, they were written down for our instruction. And so the Old Testament is valuable for our instruction. Holy Spirit also implies a closed canon that we spoke about two weeks ago through Pastor Hawkins' class, uh, these these scripture proofs, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. Um, let me add Jude 1.3. Do talking to that first century uh, Christian church. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning your common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. How do you contend for the faith? A closed canon of the Old Testament. So that would imply a closed canon. And obviously, when we now talk about the New Testament canon, how did the New Testament canon uh, come about? Um, well, Christ himself established for his church the formal authority structure. Uh, and I know there's a lot of discussion, most of us have heard it. He basically was pre-authenticated their spoken words, the, the apostles. So there is an apostle, uh, apostle witness that is part of the, uh, the uh, New Testament canon. And these scripture verses here, John 14, 25, 26, and he's talking to that first century uh, church, to his disciples. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus is the ultimate canon, right? As in the aspect. And in his, the New Testament, he pre-authenticated their spoken word as they were led by the Holy Spirit. 
And in John 16, 12 to 15, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus speaking to that first century uh, church is referring to his disciples this is what will be bringing remembrance to you. And then we have the church built upon the, the apostles and the prophets. Not the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament prophets, although they speak in the spirit of prophecy, which is Christ Jesus. And so then the New Testament can, uh, in due time, was recognized. Now, if you ever, this is a good reference to get. This is a a new systematic theology of the Christian faith by Robert Raymond. It's a systematic theology, but he gives you the historical aspect of the Reformers, how uh, this came to be. So I'm borrowing some quotes from him. So this is a good reference. Uh, Dr. Raymond in his new systematic theology says, in due course, God himself authenticated these New Testament organs of the redemptive historical revelation as his spokesman by granting them the power to perform miracles. The apostolic witness. You can drive out of the scriptures. We're not looking at there as the church did later, which was good to fortify our belief and say, well, this is why we're choosing this as the canon because the apostolic witness. No, we're recognized this is the canon, and this is how we're pulling out the apostolic witness. That's kind of a, a difference there. These apostles first exercised the authority orally by preaching rather than by writing, but when they began to write, they regarded their own and their other apostles' writings, as we've seen, as an equal authority with spoken words. In fact, we uh, we can pull that out of uh, Scripture. Who did who has First Thessalonians two fifteen to say the pastor? And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you see the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus and in Judea, where you suffered the same things from the world as the men, as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the cross, and wrote us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking as the Gentiles, that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sin. And so we see some uh, the aspect of authority in the apostles here. And Ethan, I think I gave you the last one in Second uh, Peter. Peter here, who's writing to that first century, who just got done speaking about false teachers and uh, coming into the church, he, he basically speaks and gives uh, authority credence to Paul's writings. Be diligent, be found by him, without spot or calamity. At a peace, at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks of them and these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own structure, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of the lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Him be the glory both now and Amen. And so we see the, the apostolic authority in there. And Dr. Raymond puts their authoritative words comprised of the 
apostolic deposit or tradition, which the church was to guard to which it was to, and which it did, in fact, immediately adhere to the matters of faith and life. Uh, these are words that uh, uh, the first century church just recognized as being true. Now, I realize there were those who, as we see throughout um, Paul's epistles, those who tried to claim that uh, he was false, and so that was all the reference to how he had to contend for the faith there. Um, Dr. Raymond concludes, but the church coming to an understanding of which books were to comprise the New Testament canon and to the realization that canon was complete was a slow, almost imperceptible process. Martin H. Franceman, in the word of the Lord grows, notes that before 170 A.D., none of the apostolic fathers fathers explicitly asked or answered the question, which books are included in the list of those which are normative for the church? The books are quoted and alluded to. Moreover, we find a witness to the fact that the thought and life of the church were being shaped by the content of the New Testament writings. There are some specific witnesses in the church fathers writing to the fact that the New Testament writings assumed a position of authority in the church, which they shared with their no other writings. The Lord and the apostles appear as authoritative voices besides the Old Testament scriptures. So there wasn't any church council that was gathering together trying to say when the uh, what was the canon. It was already recognized, our 27 books that we have in our very hand. What happened later on uh, is some... Uh, Scholars would know uncertainty about some of the New Testament came up probably around 160 A.D. because heretics entered into the picture and entered into the church. And one of the heretics was Marcion, who was a Gnostic heretic. He rejected the entire Old Testament and accepted only a mutilated Luke and Acts and 10, what he corrected, epistles of Paul. And so obviously that became a matter of church concern, and that's when the church gathered together and started to look at what is the canon. Because uh, the New Testament 27 books was already considered uh, canonical. And so that's where you get into history of all these arguments and, and it makes the appearance that uh, man was deciding what the canon was, and that's far from it. Some final historical tidbits on the New Testament canon. Uh, prior to AD 325, no commission of theologians or church council met to define or impose a canon on the church. Uh, A.D. 325, Eusebius of Caesarea in his survey of ecclesiastical history, book 3, chapter 25, reports that the 27 books occupied a place of authority in the life of the church. Athanasius in 367 in his 39th Paschal letter refers to the 27 books as the wellspring of salvation. Not saying uh, we're deciding what the canon is, they're recognizing it already. And then the A.D. 397, the Third Council of Carthage affirmed the 27 books of the New Testament as canonical. And then finally, in one of the councils of Trent, this is where the Apocrypha was added. It was a, the Council of Trent was actually a counter-reformation to the Reformation um, uh, towards this, and then they introduced the Apocrypha. And obviously, whenever you don't hold to the authority of God's Word, all kinds of error will creep into the church, and hence these extra-biblical. Now, they're good human writings. Like I said, you go to the bookstore and read them. I mean, you can read them, but they're not authoritative. And hence, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith, godly men who gather between those times, giving us what are the books of the Bible. I like what John Calvin says again, Scripture bears its own authentication. 
let this point there let this point therefore stand that those whom the Holy Spirit has inwardly taught truly rest upon Scripture, and that Scripture indeed is self-authenticated. Hence, it is not right to subject it to proof and reasoning. In my very listen to my apologetics course, um, the proof and reasoning fortifies our thinking, fortifies our faith, but it's not the judge of God's word, and certainly it deserves what it attains by the testimony of the Spirit. We'll look at that later down in Westminster Confession of Faith, the illumination. And so, the authority of the Holy Spirit, as we just read in the Westminster Confession of Faith, for which ought to be believed and obeyed, depended not upon the testimony of man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore is to be received, because it is the very word of God. Scripture self-witness is important, because without it, we really would not have an argument for biblical authority, right? If something outside of God's word would say, well, I, that's the authority, then you then there has to be authority. God is self-authenticated. It's self-attesting. Can't get into those arguments. We, some of us Christians sometimes get muddled thinking, thinking, well, we have, to, we have to defend the Word of God. But the question always is, in your apologetic argument, I, it helps quite frequently, by what authority do you say that? I remember one time I had a, a young man say, well, we all know monks wrote the Bible. And I says, where did you get that at? By what authority do you speak that? Because that's a serious affront to God Almighty who says that's his word. He says, well, everybody knows that. I said, well, I'm right here in this subset. I'm not everybody. And so it can't be everybody. Well, what? well, I read it once in a book. So you read that book. What was the author's name? Well, I don't remember. Well, if, let's say the author's name was John Brown. So is John Brown your authority? So apologetic arguments goes right back down to who the authority? You can use that. Use that by what authority, and what do they ultimately have to admit if they're being truthful? I'm the authority, because you bought into it. And so, we're almost done. What are the practical implications? It's good to get all this this knowledge and and uh, a kind of a brief survey. But what is the practical implications that God's word is true and it's their authority? Number one, it's sufficient for a rule of life faith in life, and as John Calvin says, our assurance. You and I who have struggled in faith on our assurance have to rest upon that the Word of God, the very Word of God, is true, certain. Calvin wrote, thus these sacrilegious men wishing to impose an unbridled tyranny upon the cover of the church do not care with what absurdities they ensnare themselves and others, provided they can force this one idea upon the simple-minded, that the church has its authority in all things. Yet if this is so, what will happen to the miserable consciences seeking firm assurance of eternal life if all promises are consistent and depend solely upon the judgment of men? Would you be comfortable with that? Mm-mm. Will they cease to vacillate and tremble when they receive such an answer? Again, to what mockeries of the impious is our faith subjected? And to what suspicion has it fallen among all men if we believe that it's a precarious authority dependent so upon the good pleasure of men? Sorry about that. <clears throat> our confession of faith talks about assurance is not the essence of saving faith. Our assurance wavers, but our assurance is based upon the Word of God. You do away with the Word of God, there is no aspect of insurance. So, our ongoing sanctification is also a practical implication. Sanctify them in their truth, their Word is truth. And as uh, Mr. Lewis taught us last week, 
Remember, scripture memorization, that is our sword of the spirit to fight the battle. Are you going to pick up a weapon that is defective? No. One of certainty. That is our, that. and we'll be probably uh, going through that in our evening uh, uh, sermons on the, uh, the armor of God. And it's very important in our evangelism and apologetics by what authority we speak. And anyway, I, as I promised you, as we're going to close, here is a good uh, fighter verse. If all this, if I pulled you into the forest and you can't see the trees, then right here, as God said, Romans 3, 1 to 4, I'm going to use the last one there, chapter 4. By no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And so when I start reading through all the uh, the uh, uh, aspects of all this, these biblical criticisms and theologians and and uh, trying to criticize the Word of God, I, it just made my brain just go all over the place. I just had to say, let God be true and all men liars is one translation. That's what, that was my final conclusion to the matter. Okay, and hopefully that would be your final conclusion too.